Welcome to podcast number 18 of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is September 24th, 2018, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's guest is Joe Koenig. Joe retired as an inspector from the Michigan State Police after 26 years. He has worked for more than 10 years in banking and the insurance sectors. Since 2005, he has owned and operated KMI Investigations, focusing on financial investigations. He is a certified fraud examiner and an author holding a Bachelor of Science degree in accounting from Wayne State. State University and a master's in public administration from Eastern Michigan University. He is the author of several articles and the award-winning book, Getting the Truth, and is a much sought-after speaker on how to discover the real message, distinguishing truth from deception, and how to sculpt questions to get to the truth. He really knows how to read between the lines. And now with the show. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We'll explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigators investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Welcome. Uh, I appreciate uh, bringing me on. You're quite welcome. So how are things in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area today? Beautiful, beautiful weather here. Low 70s, breezy, and it's really nice. Yes. And I am uh, staring out at uh, Lake Chautauqua in western New York today. I'm on vacation, but we had this scheduled and I wanted to do it. So uh, I have a equally beautiful day here. Not a cloud in the sky, low humidity, and uh, and low 70s as well. So, um, Joe, the uh, the listeners have already received your bio and a little talk about who you are. So, but uh, I always like to ask my guests, uh, what is it that you do and what do you tell people that is it, is it that you do? Well, I have over 45 years of investigative experience, experience in both the public and private sectors. I'm a certified fraud examiner, which is a certification that uh, it's now uh, certified by test, and uh, it's like a CPA certification. Uh, it's for uh, forensic accounting, basically, and I've had that for many, many years, and I'm also a forensic linguist focusing on financial investigations to include some forensic accounting. Now, forensic ling- linguist, I know that was easy for me to say. I'm going to come back to you again a little bit later on that because that's uh, the thing that I really want to talk to you about. But I am also a, a certified fraud examiner uh, from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners in Austin, Texas. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get grandfathered into their program uh, many, many years ago based upon my skills and uh, background. I know that uh, you're right. It's a very rigorous test that uh, new uh, CFEs have to go through. But uh, you say 45 years of public and private. When did you get started in, in investigations? And I guess what, what, what attracted you to the investigations world? 
Well, I started with the Michigan State Police in 1967, eventually retired in 93 after 26 years. Uh, started out as a trooper in the Michigan State Police. And in the Michigan State Police, troopers not only do highway patrol, but they also conduct investigations. Um, so it wasn't unusual for a trooper actually to be sent to a homicide scene and then actually follow through on the entire investigation from uh, getting the uh, developing a suspect, getting a warrant, and uh, testifying in a prosecution. So uh, I got a real good feel for investigations while I was a trooper, and uh, I uh, really liked investigations. So. I decided uh, in the state police, you can kind of decide whether or not you want to go uniform or detective. And I decided to go the detective route. And during that time period, Joe, when you wanted to become a detective, were there good role models for you there to, to emulate your investigations from? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Both uh, as troopers and detectives and my supervisors. I have a whole number of them that I've listed in my my first, actually both books, uh, in the tribute section. So I've got a number of them that I listed and uh, I revere. Mentors were real important to me. I agree. And it's important for especially a young pup coming up in the business that you can actually see the work being done. You can see it done by somebody that's professional. You know the difference between somebody that's taking the job seriously and somebody that's just, uh, you know, uh, punching the clock, so to speak. And uh, it's important that, you know, that you tell me that you gravitated towards the guys and gals that, you know, could show you how to do the job the right way. So um, what kind of uh, detective work did you do while you were with the uh, state police? Well, my first promotion after a uh, trooper, <clears throat> and you had to be, in those days, you had to be on the road at least seven years before you were considered for a promotion. So my first promotion was to detective sergeant in the organized crime section of our intelligence division in Detroit. And uh, so I worked organized crime during that job. And then I was later promoted to detective lieutenant overseeing uh, the the detectives in our second district or our Detroit area in their work. Then from there to detective lieutenant overseeing Detroit narcotics. Uh, following that, I did two years as a field inspector for the department, <clears throat> which is basically uh, the department's auditor, checking out various posts throughout the state, actually all posts throughout the state for compliance, effectiveness, efficiency. Uh, and then I was promoted to inspector uh, back in the Detroit area and uh, oversaw all all narcotics investigations in the Detroit area. Then I retired in 93, became a manager for uh, Hartford Financial and in, in, uh, later in Connecticut, overseeing that company's investigations into organized medical fraud. Oh, and really? I Yep. Then I retired uh, from Hartford in 2004 and founded KMI Investigations in 2005. And uh, KMI stands for? Uh, Koenig of Michigan Investigations in uh, in Western Michigan. Okay. 
And uh, when you were uh, living in uh, the Hartford area, uh, what town did you uh, live in? Cromwell. Lived uh, right in uh, the River Highlands where they have the Travelers Open Championship every year, PGA. Oh, nice area. Nice area. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, back in uh, 86, I moved from suburban uh, Philly up to uh, Milford, Connecticut. So, yes. So oh, yeah. We, uh, we, we might have been... Uh, out on the links during the uh the Greater Hartford Open, you know, and not even known it that we were out there, there together. Go. So Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Anyway. So uh now uh you've you've you're your own boss. You're uh KMI. Tell me a little bit more about your uh, investigative work now as a private. Well now I focus on financial investigations only because um I'm I'm looking for a specific kind of work that uh really uh takes advantage of my skills. Now I might handle a surveillance or something like that on occasion, but rarely. Uh, and quite frankly, I've I send those off to other PIs who can do it maybe cheaper and better than I because they've got the equipment specifically for that. But I'll do financial investigations. I'll assist attorneys on uh, evaluating witnesses, uh, looking at uh, transcripts, depositions to help the attorneys determine uh, weaknesses in the witness's testimony, for example, or in discovery. Uh, so uh, I'll do a lot of interviewing. And preparing, helping prepare the attorneys for uh, their difficult tasks ahead. Sure. Now, I, I know you're talking to the choir here about uh, what you're describing as statement analysis. And if, but if you could go into a little bit more detail for our listeners about that, that would be great. Well, I took, uh, I really developed my passion for statement analysis, uh, and another word for that is forensic linguistics. Um, actually, about the year I retired, uh, I had been sending all my detectives to a school called SCAN, Scientific Content Analysis. I think you went through that, John. I certainly did. Uh, which was conducted by Avinom Sapir. So uh, I made sure I was able to attend his schools, every school he had, quite frankly, basic, advanced, and uh, anything else he would offer because I was just, I just fell in love with uh, his ability to understand the real message. And uh, his techniques were uh, just kind of uh, breathtaking to me in that it revealed so much. Uh, that I, I wouldn't have known without those skills. And then I also took uh, several of the Reed courses, the John Reed Interview and Interrogation Schools, which are taken a, a bit of a hit here recently, but their schools, their, their, uh, their methods are uh, really sound and really complement the scan process. So if you combine those two, uh, you can become a powerful interviewer, uh, interrogator, and um, see things that many other people just can't see. 
using the concepts and skills. And then I took those two, kind of married them, and then I have developed my own process since then, which takes both of those into account and also uh, evolves into looking at word patterns, uh, communication patterns. And specifically, once you're, uh, for example, if you interview a subject, you calibrate to the subject uh, during the non-stressful portions of the interview to get a feel for their vocabulary, the way they pronounce words, the way they articulate, their breathing patterns, their eye movements. All of those things constitute a communication pattern when you're doing a face-to-face interview. If it's uh, simply looking at a transcript, then that's one-dimensional, and that's a kind of a different story. But when you're interviewing somebody, you have a host of variables that you can key in on and uh, calibrate to the individual because everybody communicates uniquely. And then look for changes in those communication patterns and and then further try to explain uh, why those changes occurred. Now, those changes could have occurred because of a loud noise in the room. Could have, it could have occurred because all of a sudden the subject remembered something that he, he wanted to talk about but hadn't, but wanted to remember to talk about it in the future. Or it could be he, was, he or she was being deceptive. Uh, one thing I've found is that, uh, and, I, and I go over this in my book, Getting the Truth, and also in my subsequent book here, which supposedly is going to be released in December. Uh, what's the title of that, Joe? The title of that is going to be uh, Getting the Truth, I am D.B. Cooper. Okay. So uh, an exciting case, something I've been working on for the last two and a half years. So in addition to my investigations, I'm also, you know, investigating things for authoring articles and books. So I've been pretty busy. I bet you have been. So, I, I and as I say in many of my podcasts, you know, you're preaching to the choir as, as, uh, yep. you know, I'm, I am a fellow student of Avenum Sapir, an Israeli polygrapher and, uh, a gentleman that, like you said, it was, it was, uh, Eye-opening as to uh, how he was able to take a uh, a written statement and determine if there was areas for further questioning, and right down to the to the paragraphs, right down to the sentences where there was a possibility of um, deception. Um, I know that just and just to talk about it briefly, when I went to the class in Alexandria, Virginia, back in the early nineties. He split the class in half without telling us which is which. And he had us write out what we had done, um, 24 hours previously. Yeah. And one of and half the class was to tell the truth, what we did 24 hours earlier. And the other half was to make it up. And the next day he came back with our, um, statements of what we did 24 hours earlier. And he said, and he handed out all the false ones to the false people. And he handed out all the true ones to the true people. And 
it was it was uncanny how he was <laughs> able to um know from our people that were total strangers to him literally you know who was telling the truth and who wasn't and how many heirs did he have uh he only had i think 3 out of how many people uh there was i think 25 in the class so, okay yeah so okay. That, and that wasn't bad but uh one of the guys who uh was was chosen to be truthful well he couldn't be truthful what he was doing the day before. <laughs> so he had to make it up. Uh, but yet he was, he said he was in the truthful category. Do you know what I mean? He was doing uh -huh. something that he shouldn't have been yeah. doing 24 hours earlier, but yet he, he had been designated by our class to be the truthful one and he couldn't. So, uh, that was very, very interesting. Uh, well, you, you know, that, that, uh, set up by Avidome, I'm sure he learned from that because if somebody did something wrong the day before, they're not about to admit it, you know, in that truthful area. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. And, uh, and, and what, it, what that little exercise did was it took a bunch of hard boiled detectives, people that were, you know, a little skeptical of this guy with this thick, uh, accent. And, uh, you know, this very, you know, uh, scientific type of fellow and, and have him talk about the theory behind it that first day, just to give us the theory, but then come back the next day with the, uh, and telling who were being truthful and who was being, uh, untruthful and, and having, uh, uh an error rate of less than, uh, of, of less than, uh, 12%. And that just blew me away. And I think that blew everybody in the class away. And then we. And he said that, uh, in my class anyway, uh, tell me if he said the same thing in your class, John, but he said that, and he was a, an experienced polygrapher. Mm -hmm. he, he said he found this process, the scan process, more accurate than polygraph. Yes. And he said that too in yours? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he did. And, and I could see why. I can understand why with the mechanics of how, how the statements work. Now, uh, we're both talking about something that we are intimately familiar with. Yeah. So if you had to explain what we just talked about to somebody at a dinner table at a dinner party, how would you explain statement analysis to them? Just, just so that we could, uh, give them uh, the same benchmarks that we're familiar with. Well, I'd, I'd kind of like to go beyond statement analysis as, as Avenum sets it, because I, I go beyond that. But okay. here's, here's how I would explain it. The communication process is a very complex process. Uh, any, uh, the way we communicate, each and every movement, each and every word we use is a decision. Um, either conscious or subconscious. And uh, there are no mistakes. And if I, because, you know, I have some vulgar words in my vocabulary, but I will not reveal those during this discussion. And I choose not to. So your your brain processes your vocabulary and the ways you communicate through body language, eye movements, and other things so quickly. It's it's kind of like 
uh, imagine or visualize a huge parking lot with vehicles in it, and you're looking at it, you're looking at it from the air, and uh, uh, each of those vehicles could represent a communication, not a communication pattern, but a communication element. It could be a hand movement, could be your lips curl uh, when you pronounce a certain word, could be uh, a word choice. And it also is, a, there, there are also decisions when you go over words that you think about, but you choose not to use. So in, in forensic linguistics, uh, statement analysis, we look not only at what is said, how it is said, but also what isn't said. So uh, you're looking at a number of different dimensions, uh, and these, and keep in mind, these are all decisions, and uh, there are no mistakes. Uh, so people say, oh, I didn't mean that. Well, it, it, there was a decision at some point to say what you said, and there's a reason behind that. There's a reason behind every decision, and uh, so it's our jobs as uh, forensic linguists to look at what you said, how you said it, what you didn't say, and try to determine the reasons for those actions, those decisions. No, I, I agree with you 100%. As I might say to somebody about just statement analysis and not necessarily forensic, uh, forensic linguistics, is that uh, in a more simpler fashion is that looking at a written statement of an event or an occurrence, um, people have a choice of using the language of their memory or the language of making something up or deception. Yeah, and, create. And yep. Creative. And it's two different languages. And and one of the things that I learned, and I'm sure you did, was over by repetition of looking at statements of truthful statements, partially truthful statements, partially deceptive statements, and totally deceptive statements, is you know how the language changes uh, <clears throat> from statement to statement and what languages are used. And the change in pronouns, distancing, uh, like for instance, uh, 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 an insurer that torches his car. It's my car, my car, my car, my car during the first, you know, recounting of, of a day. And then when it becomes the time period when it gets torched, it becomes the car or, you know, the car, the car. Yeah. And he distances yeah. himself from the event. And we know that as well from. Uh, things less important than uh, uh, an auto arson. We know it from discussions about murders and mysterious disappearance of, uh, of oh, yeah. wives and children. And uh, it, it just it just jumps off the page when you see it. Now, of course, you can transcribe a, a verbal statement and make it written, and then you can trans and then you can do the analysis on it. Uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing as well. But to your point, um, how how does this aid um, the uh, the attorney who has reams and reams of uh, depositions or uh, affidavits in front of them and can't see the forest from the trees? So tell me how that helps them and, and what you do with it and how it, it, it puts them into a situation where they are better uh, able to uh, work with the information you've provided them. Well, you can look at a, at a statement. Uh, let's say, for instance, uh, 
a person is speaking in first person singular, past tense, in the active voice. Now, let me define those things for you. Sure. First person singular would be I, the pronoun I. Mm -hmm. I is a very important pronoun because it really nails down, there's only one I, and it nails down responsibility and accountability. If they speak in the past tense, which is uh, uh, Johnny threw the ball, uh, that's past tense. The ball has already been thrown. It's past. And uh, that is in the active voice, by the way. An active voice uh, is uh, when, you see, when you know who the actor is versus the passive voice. Well, the active voice would be Johnny threw the ball. I threw the ball. I caught the ball. Now, versus the passive voice, which would be the ball was thrown where the actor is not identified. The ball was caught. Uh, and so the passive voice, especially if you see somebody who shows they're capable of speaking in the active voice, then they switch to the passive voice for some unexplained reason. That's a good indicator that there is deception. And uh, so you can key off things like that uh, to um, identify deceptive statements or areas in a statement that uh, the attorney can then key on. We can uh, drill down and find more evidence with respect to that and save time by not looking at other areas that are truthful. So it's a it's a big advantage to attorneys. No, I, and I agree with you a hundred percent that being able to arm them with a, a review of the depositions and say these are the areas to key on. This is an area for further expo- exploration. This is an area that you didn't get a responsive answer to, uh, and uh, you can see, or you could say this is the theme that they're that the uh, respondent or the person that was giving the statement was trying to give, as opposed to maybe an actual recounting of an event. <laughs> uh, it's it it just jumps off the page. Now, to the trained viewer or to the uh, trained reader or listener, it becomes more obvious. I, I too, I have to say, uh, Joe, I too. Uh, during my uh, insurance fraud investigation days, combined uh, the scan technique with the read technique for for a very powerful one-two punch. And I felt that uh, it had um, turbocharged my statement taking and my uh, interviewing of people that uh, were had to recount events for me. And it, it really was important. There are parts of the read technique that uh, when you know, utilized in an ethical manner along with, uh, the, the, uh, scan could, it could easily, uh, be, um, a way of, of how shall we say it, uh, uh, removing, uh, taking the, uh, the, the subject of the interview out of their comfort zone and putting them into a place where they have to think on their feet. So, uh, anyway, uh, that's just what I'm, uh, that's my recollection of, of that time in doing that. Uh, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm, I'm still, 
working on little nuances on this book that I've uh, that is due out, but it's done. It's uh, right. for all intents and purposes, it's done, and it's to the book designer. So beyond that, I uh, I'm doing uh, some innocence work for an attorney friend of mine. Uh, for instance, I have about six cases. Uh, uh, and four of those, uh, look promising. Two of them that I've really drilled down on, uh, I went into them and actually got, uh, statements and interviews from the prisoners themselves and analyzed their statements. And, uh, in particular, one, I was, uh, forced to, uh, after my analysis, force and a, and a review of all the evidence forced to tell the family that look there's no point in spending any more money on this uh the man is guilty he 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 killed uh his partner so it works both ways mm -hmm. uh and uh to be honest it's just a very uh it's a very important and uh, powerful tool that's out there. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, statement analysis, forensic linguistics, definitely without a doubt. So, uh, if you, if you had to summarize a little bit for us, your first book, give us the title again and tell us a little bit about it and then summarize or tell us the title again of your soon to be coming out book and what that's about. And then, and then Joe, we'll get into the stories a little later. Okay. Um, I might add on forensic linguistics, it's not simply interpreting what you have. Uh, it's also setting the stage for you to be able to get a truthful statement. So in other words, uh, it's about asking the right questions at the right time and uh, in the right way. So it's structuring questions properly. Uh, and I do speaking engagements on this, but it's structuring questions properly to allow yourself to be able to get the truth. One of the things uh, Avenom used to preach was getting the original pure statement. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very important. Trying to get an original statement or interview from someone uh, and doing so by minimizing contamination. And you can contaminate just by the question you ask. You can contaminate the response. So you've got to be very, very careful using forensic linguistics, uh, concepts and skills to carve questions properly so that you allow yourself to get truthful statements. Because in the end, people want to tell the truth. It's uh, it's like water seeking its own level. That's a powerful force you've got working for you. Uh, alcoholics, for example, can't rebuild their lives until they confess that they are alcoholics. And that is a really uh, one of the basic premises of of interview and interrogation. And that is uh, getting them to the point where they want to. Uh, let their water equalize, uh, and you, you take advantage of that force within them 
that they want to tell the truth because it's from there, it's only from there that they can grow. Anyway, sure. so I, I got off the ground there a little bit. No. My, first, my first book, Getting the Truth, uh, is really about the concepts and principles uh, of forensic linguistics. It gives many examples of uh, how I do it and uh, what you can uh, uh, reveal as a result of that kind of analysis. Uh, for instance, I, I evaluate uh, pretty extensively uh, O.J. Simpson's statement to uh, Detectives Lang and Van Adder when they interviewed him the day after uh, the homicides of his uh, wife and uh, another young man by the name of Goldwyn, Goldman, and uh, show how uh, the questions uh, – now, they did, a, they did a fine job. Uh, the detectives, but I show how they could have improved some of their questions, and uh, it's it's all along the lines of uh, forcing the subject kind of to tell the truth. N forcing is a is a bad word. Uh, I think allowing the person to tell the truth is better. Sure, but but you got to be careful not to contaminate the interview. Anyway. Right. So I do that uh, in my book, and I also do uh, uh, like Dylan Farrell and her uh, uh, allegation against Woody Allen that he sexually molested her as a child. I look at her statement, uh, analyze it, uh, and determine it's truthful, and then I look at Woody Allen's response to her statement, analyze it and determine that it's less than desirable, mm -hmm. which which leads you to believe that uh, it, it supports Dylan's uh, allegation much more uh, because of his very, very poor denial. So I go into those kinds of uh, casework showing the uh, reader how you go about doing this analysis. Now, my next book, uh, D uh, Getting the Truth, I am D.B. Cooper is the compilation of work, uh, really of a team at my publisher's office. Uh, but I concentrated on, uh, over the last two and a half years, evaluating the evidence, gathering uh, new evidence, uh, comparing uh, and analyzing a three and a half hour transcript between Carl Lauren, the best friend of D.B. Cooper, uh, now known as uh, Walt Recca, R-E-C-A. And it's a, a, a recording that Carl made of his discussions with Walter about him confessing to being D.B. Cooper. So I analyzed that uh, statement in, the, in this new book, uh, uh, which was a daunting project because I've got over a hundred pages of statement analysis, basically. Wow! So I I show the audience how uh, how I go about that, and then I and then in the end I compare all of our evidence to uh, what the FBI has published and show the commonalities, the similarities, the unique uh, conversations that only the hijacker would know and how closely 
that resembles what the FBI reports the crew told him. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty compelling, uh, uh, it's a very compelling book. And uh, in the end, I conclude that Walter Recca is D.B. Cooper. How about that? And for our <laughs> listeners and maybe our younger listeners, uh, <laughs> we mentioned Airplane Hijacker, D.B. Cooper. Can you kind of like put that all together and tell the, the baseline of that story? Yeah, thanks, John. I I forget that. I was lead investigator on the Hoffa case, too, uh, for the state police. But uh, when I'm at speaking engagements, I'll talk about the Hoffa case, and there are a number of blank faces out there. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, and the same is true for D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper was uh, is <clears throat> uh, the only skyjacking in American history where uh, the skyjacker was never found. Now, in this case, on November 24th, 1971, uh, Walt Recca, uh, also known as D.B. Cooper, hijacked an airplane that was uh, flying out of Portland towards Seattle. In the air, he uh, slipped a note to uh, the stewardess and uh, telling her that he had a briefcase with a bomb in it and that he was demanding $200,000 in cash and in used $20 bills. Uh, so he was, he was giving her a hijack note. So she passed it on. They circled Seattle Airport until, oh, excuse me, he also demanded four parachutes. So uh, he, uh, the plane circled Seattle until the money and the parachutes were gathered. They landed in Seattle. He allowed the passengers to be released when the the money and the parachutes were delivered to him by the stewardess at the rear of the plane. And then the plane, uh, at his instructions, took off for he wanted to go to Mexico. But they said, well, the best we can do is Reno. So he said, that's OK. And the plane took off. And around eight o'clock that evening in a cold November night, dark, very rainy, cloudy, windy, poor conditions, flying conditions, uh, the pilots had to fly by instrument because they couldn't see. Their visibility was very poor. Uh, around 8 o'clock, uh, uh, this plane was a Boeing 727, which at that time had a rear staircase. And uh, he went out the rear staircase and uh, never to be seen or heard from again until now. Okay. That's the story of D.B. Cooper, a.k.a. you say Walt Rucka? Yep. Okay. Walter Record. Yep. Okay. Well, that's going to be a good read when it comes out. And I'll, I'll make sure to put a note, uh, in my, uh, uh, mailing to my subscribers of uh, the date that that is published. So, uh, this is at the Thank point. You, oh, you're welcome. And this is the point where I always ask my uh, guests for their favorite <laughs> story. Well, you know, you said these were easy questions, but th that's a tough one. Okay. For me, a guy who's been in this business over, you know, 50 years. So much uh, to choose from. Yeah. But I, I, I keep going back to uh, a small, uh, maybe not as interesting a case for the listeners, but it was uh, very important to me because uh, police work 
is uh, you don't get many good results from police work or much satisfaction. So you look for, I look for cases that I've been involved in where I'm very satisfied with the results and what happened. And I made, uh, you know, I know I made somebody's life a little better. Anyway, I hark, I go back to a case back when I was a trooper where uh, a mother uh, of a, of a, a very uh, young daughter complained to us that her husband, the daughter's stepfather, had sexually molested her. Uh, and I carefully investigated that with a lot of care for the girl's feelings and uh, <clears throat> obtained sufficient evidence to get a warrant and convict the father. And then the satisfying part was afterwards, sometime afterwards, I got a, a note from the daughter thanking me for that investigation. And I'll always remember that and uh, just always be proud of that. So that's, that's, I think, my favorite story. And I've got another one here for later. Yeah. Now, as part of that story, um, what was the uh, obstacles that you had to overcome in order to uh, gather the evidence to show that you had uh, uh, reasonable, uh, probable cause to make the arrest and, and maybe enough evidence to uh, withstand a court case and beyond a reasonable doubt? What, what was it that, that happened? Well, re remember, this was uh, like the D.B. Cooper and the Hoffa cases. This was uh, in the early 70s. This case, particular case, was probably in the late 60s. <clears throat> there was no such thing as DNA, uh, nor did we as investigators know about DNA or even the concept. Uh, all we had were fingerprints, evidence, and even that wasn't uh, all that good because in order to get somebody on fingerprints, for example, maybe you'll remember, John, you had to have a suspect to compare the, the, the latent fingerprint to in order to get any identification. Sure. Now they submit it to a computer database and it scans <clears throat> all those fingerprints on file and give you potential suspects. We didn't have that in the late 60s. <clears throat> Photographs, for example, took uh, two days to uh, develop. Uh, I remember when I first went to, uh, I, I spent a couple years as an AVP for a large national bank, and uh, I was amazed to see that their camera system was so antiquated that we had to first develop the film in a dark room and uh, and then uh, uh, get prints, you know, photographic prints that we then in turn had to develop as well. So the processes back then were very antiquated. Mm -hmm. So so I wouldn't have had DNA. I didn't have fingerprint evidence. So it's basically finding, uh, first of all, interviewing the young girl in such a way that uh, – and I didn't even have this training that I have now in terms of getting an uncontaminated statement. So I probably made mistakes in gathering the information, uh, but I, I did a sufficient job. And then uh, it's looking for other ways that you can corroborate, making sure that the father would have been 
in the in the location of the sexual assault uh, at the time this occurred. Certainly interviewing the mother to get her uh, her uh, uh, statements on record about what she saw and heard and maybe even felt. Others in the in the family. So it's it's a process of building that case such that you find evidence that corroborates or disproves what the, the young girl is telling you. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, unlike the TV shows, police officers work hard to disprove, uh, you know, what a what a complaining witness is telling them as well as prove what the uh, complaining witness is telling them. So you go through a process of gathering evidence and, uh, and when it fits, it fits and you uh, write that up. And in those days uh, you had Underwood typewriters, mechanical Mm -hmm. typewriters and six, uh, six copies, six copy reports where you had to type, uh, <clears throat> the interviews and all the all your findings on a report that had five carbons mm-hmm. that were all rolled into an Underwood typewriter, and then invariably you'd make some mistake and you had to go in and, and <laughs> erase uh, certain letters and certain words and then bring it back to that same area in this mechanical typewriter to uh, <clears throat> make it look like uh, a fairly professional typewritten report sure and then you, you hand that to the prosecutor and then you you know you build your case from there and uh <clears throat> you were able to secure the evidence necessary to uh to effect an arrest yep yep and prosecute successfully he was convicted oh so he went to trial <clears throat> and, and was found oh, guilty yeah. yep okay yep. And, and and it was able and you were able to bring closure to that young girl and and, and credibility to her as well. She was not uh, uh, crying uh, wolf. This was a uh, a validated uh, sexual assault complaint. There you go. Unlike Dylan Farrell, she had closure. You know, mm-hmm. Dylan Farrell did not. Gotcha. So, um, well, that's a great story, and I certainly appreciate it. Joe, um, how could, if my listeners want to, uh, reach out to you, is, uh, is there any way that you prefer that they, uh, contact you so that they can learn more about, uh, your work? Sure. I, my website is www.kmiinvestigations.com. That's K-M-I investigations with an S on the end, all one word, dot com. They can uh, get an autographed copy of uh, my first book on that website. Uh, and my email is joe, J-O-E dot K-O-E-N-I-G at K-M-I-Investigations.com. So I, I always do the phonetic spelling. K is in Kenneth, M is in Mary, I is in Ida, and then the whole word investigations, plural, dot com. Correct. All right. So it's like a double I there. And I wanted to make sure of that. All right. Well, Joe, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Next week's guest is Sheila Wysocki. She is a mother of two and an accomplished private detective. After solving her former roommate's murder, a case that had gone cold for nearly 25 years, Sheila devoted herself to detective work completely founding the non-profit without warning fighting back. She uses this as an outlet for advocating for victims of crime. She is a licensed professional investigator who will get to the truth no matter how long it takes. Her podcast, Without Warning, should be added to your playlist. I'm hooked and I do this stuff for a living. Our circle around the campfire continues to grow by leaps and bounds. I thank you for telling your friends and leaving reviews on your favorite podcast app. FYI, each episode takes around five hours to research, interview, edit, format, and produce, as well as share. Then there are the expenses to air the shows. I love these podcasts, and your ongoing support is appreciated. You can support the show for less than a couple coffees a month at patreon.com forward slash my favorite detective stories patreon is spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash my favorite detective stories all one word and you will receive all the stories and just the stories from my guests but wait there's more each guest has given me a second story exclusively for patreon subscribers help me bring to you my favorite detective stories